Welcome to Flip the Script, your go-to podcast about health disparities. My name is Max. My guest today is Dr. Brian Williams. He's a trauma surgeon at the University of Chicago. I'll let him tell us a little bit more about himself. Hi, Max. Thanks for having me today. I appreciate the, uh, appreciate the invitation. And uh, yeah, you're right. Uh, I'm a trauma surgeon at the University of Chicago, which explains pretty much to most everybody what that means. But for those in in academics, I'm also an associate professor of trauma and acute care surgery uh, at the medical school associated with the University of Chicago. So I have academic duties that include teaching to medical students and residents that are going to be future surgeons. And I also have some administrative duties where I am the co-director of the surgical intensive care unit, as well as the program director for a soon-to-be trauma fellowship to train future trauma surgeons. So there, there's a lot going on with, within that title. <laughs> mm-hmm. You're a busy man. Um, I've seen you on TV a lot recently, um, you know, with COVID and, uh, you know, the talk around COVID-19 um, racial disparities. But, you know, I first heard about you several years ago um, after a series of um, of shootings. Uh, I think this was 2016, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, there were... Correct. There were police shootings, um, including Alton Sterling in Louisiana, and eventually in Dallas, Texas, there was a, a police shooting. There was a shooting of police officers, and I remember that you were the trauma surgeon that had to take care um, of the officers then. And you gave an interview soon after, kind of discussing what that experience was like. You know, as a black trauma surgeon, that also obviously faces. Um, some elements of of like police and state violence. So um, it's not too much to revisit that. I'm curious what your thoughts are, especially uh, related to this moment we're currently living in, with the you know current upheaval against police um, police violence and anti-black racism. Sure. So you're referring to the July seventh, two thousand sixteen ambush of Dallas police officers which is the largest loss of life for U.S. law enforcement since 9-11. And it's still one of those events that weighs heavily on me, and I think about it uh, every day. Uh, And there's a lot of nuance that goes with that event. Uh, And I'll try to tease some of it out. You know, right now, it is reminiscent of that time, personally and professionally for me, with the uh, killing of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis and the subsequent uh, protests that are occurring around the world. In July 2016, the ambush occurred the day after Philando Castile was killed uh, outside of Minnesota. So there were protests scheduled around the country uh, in response to that. So there are some similarities there. The protest in Dallas turned deadly when a sniper, who was an African-American Army veteran, he opened fire on police officers that were at the event, providing security for what was a peaceful protest. He shot 14 police officers, seven of which were brought to the hospital where I was working that night as the trauma surgeon in the hospital, uh, leading the team. So at our hospital, there's always a trauma surgeon in the facility 24-7 to take care of trauma patients. 
So that's why I was there that night. And some of the officers came. Three of them had, three of them died from their wounds. It, it was a, I don't know, it's pretty seminal event for many reasons. Professionally, I've never lost that many patients at, uh, at once. And there's also a point in my life where I can still remember that time period, Max. That was the summer of 2016. So we're leading up to the 2016 election between Clinton and Trump. So just put yourself back in that time frame. Well, what was mm-hmm. go, what was going on when, in, within our country as far as the public discourse about a number of social issues, whether it's policing or gun violence or racism? Uh, there was just a lot going on, and a lot of that intersected with my personal and professional life. Um, but then the shooting, then the shooting happened, and uh, a few days later there was a press conference. And it's interesting that you that you said to me, I saw your interview, when the reality was it was a press conference that included six other people. So it wasn't my interview. Uh, it, just happened, so it just happened that the words I said were the mm. ones that were resonating with, with people uh, because I talked about gun violence. I talked about police brutality. I talked about my own personal narrative as far as, you know, my fear of police, but I also said, hey, you know, I stand with the police. I'm a military veteran myself, I understand what it means to wear a uniform and serve and sacrifice. So, you know, the police are not the problem. Policing has its issues, but we have to stop the violence. And, you know, for different things, people took out different things from that. Some people, you know, came back and said, well, you know, you're a sellout <laughs> for mentioning that. Others said that I was being racist. And, uh, but most of, the, most of the I got was, was a positive support for what I had said. So don't, don't get me wrong, it wasn't all negative, but the point I'm making is that when you say something you want to try to have impact with any of you can do, you, you can't expect to be universally welcome mm-hmm. and some of your words may be, mis- may be interpreted differently. So, so, but before that press conference, I was pretty happy mm-hmm. with my comfortable life of anonymity, where I just went to work and did my thing at the, at the hospital and the medical school. But after that press conference, that all ended, uh, whether I liked it or not. I no longer had any control over what was going to happen from that point on. Or should I should have no control, less control uh, from that point on. Yeah, um, that summer and fall of 2016 can get a little blurry for me. Um, so actually, yeah, I started medical school in August 2016. Uh, the protests in July, there was as you said, Philander Castile, and there was one right before, I think July 5th. Yeah, that was Alton, that was Alton Sterling. You're right, Alton Sterling in Baton Rouge. But I remember the last protest I attended before going to med school uh, was that July in Nashville, and then went to med school, and then, uh, you know, a few, like, I think a month into it, then there was Keith Lamont Scott, and there was another one. I mean, there, there were so many, um, like, that fall that, it, you know, I will never right. like. I'll never not remember what it felt like to start medical school and also, um, like, be bombarded by the news at that moment. And so it's similar now. I'm a fourth year, uh, I guess fifth year at this point chronologically. So, um, and it's kind of all is all that is in the news, and I'm at the tail end of training, um, and it's hard to think about anything else really. So I'm curious, you know, after that moment in, you know, uh, in Dallas, like, how did you, 
how did you transition back into um, what everyday life was like, if if ever? So my transition, Max, was I say I transitioned very poorly. Okay, uh, and I, I can say that now with some retros, you know, some introspection and looking back. But I was not one who was media savvy. I was not one who was a media seeker either. Uh, so all of that sort of attention was, uh, was unusual and took some getting used to. Uh, and I actually actually tried to tried to run from it for for a while. In the beginning, I didn't know what I was doing. You know, why would people why do people care what I have to say? You know, why do they want to hear what I have to say about this? Um, so trying to navigate that mm -hmm. public. Um, I don't think it's expectation, pressure, I'm not, I'm not sure what the, the proper word is, but, you know, a more, a more public presence versus how I view myself as uh, a surgeon and an educator and a husband and father, those identities that I focus most of my time on. Um, but also recognizing that I was very frustrated with this, these continued killings that we were seeing, Sterling, Castile, Scott, uh, Freddie Gray, uh, Trayvon Martin, um, but I, I didn't. I wasn't one to step into that conversation publicly, uh, and also didn't know what it, what it was I could do uh, mm -hmm. about it. So there's this internal conflict and this internal struggle uh, about what my role was in all of that. Uh, and after the shooting, uh, I tried. To, you know, for a while, the, the rock shit just took off without any preparation for me. And I was just kind of hanging on for the ride. Then when things slowed down and I kind of started trying to step back, I really tried to retreat completely uh, to reclaim my old, what I would call normal life. But there just wasn't any having any of that. The, I've just had this sense, mm -hmm. re, uh, accept that no matter what I do or where I go, uh, I'm always affiliated with that event, July 7th, because of that press conference. And it doesn't matter what I wanted or want or desired. That link is always made. So my only job is to uh, integrate that into my life and somehow turn that tragedy into something positive. And how do I use my experience, what I learned from that, to serve humanity? Uh, and that's been constant evolution you know we're, we're four years later now and i'm not going to tell you that I'm, i've done everything perfectly uh but I, what i've done is i've made a few steps i've learned and try to keep moving forward um, but in the end i keep this focus on what what am i doing to to serve society uh with with um, this attention that i have and this voice that i have and uh, this experiences that i have how can i use that to serve the common good yeah, and, and so you started this podcast called um, Race, Violence, and Medicine. Um, I'm curious what, uh, I guess, what has been the reception, both from like people that you teach, you know, like residents, medical students, fellows, um, your colleagues, and generally the academic institution that you've been working with? Well, I started my podcast, Race, Violence, and Medicine, it's probably two, probably two years ago. Yeah, two years ago, maybe two and a half years ago. 
and the impetus was uh, I didn't make I wasn't planning for to have this platform for social commentary. It came from you know I was out on the speaking circuit, speaking you know to colleges and universities and industry conferences and just traveling the country speaking, and I would meet interesting people on these when I was speaking. I'm like, oh, that person has an interesting story about X. I would like to have a conversation with them. <laughs> and then from that, I'm like, well, maybe just do a podcast and put their story out with, share their stories with other people. And from that podcast grew to where it is now, where I, I have guests that will provide commentary on divisive issues, but try to do it in a constructive and educational manner in order to inspire listeners to action. So it became, it began as just some of a labor of love with no real expectation to have listeners beyond maybe my mother and a few close friends to where it is now <laughs> that I have just strangers that walk up and say, Hey, I saw your, or heard your podcast on with so-and-so. That was really interesting. Or I'll get a random email or a text or something on you know, Twitter, a DM about a random podcast and you realize, Oh, you're, I'm having reach beyond whatever I expected. I'm having impact beyond whatever I expected. And, you know, anybody can do that. I mean, you're doing that with your podcast as well, right? You're touching people uh, that you may never, ever meet or, or know. And if you change this one person's mind, you are making a difference. Thank you. Um, you said something earlier that made me think, especially about the moment um, that we're in right now. There's been quite the massive shift, right, between 2016 and now both inside of medicine and, and, and society at large, right? Like in 20, for instance, in 2014, um, after Michael Brown uh, was shot, medical students started White Coats for Black Lives. And then, you know, the different chapters that were started then met significant pushback from their respective institutions. Um, lots of people were even irritated by the phrase Black Lives Matter. Uh, and, and fast forward, um, six years after Michael Brown, four years after Philando Castile, everyone is saying Black Lives Matter. Everyone is um, is endorsing um, white coats for Black Lives. Um, the the thing though that is like a even more significant shift is how much the idea of police abolition has grown uh, and the concept of defunding the police has grown. And you know, in your conference, in your press conference, in uh, 2016, the obviously you expressed, you know, ha having your own fears with the police and having your own issues with the, con you know, with police violence and and what have you that sort of goes wrong within policing. And I wonder whether or how much your views may have shifted in terms of how policing, you know, in terms of the concept of policing since then, especially with what we know now and and what has been written about. Um, abolition more in the lay press because obviously this is like you know decades of work of angela davis and ruth gilmore yeah so there's there's two things there one is the 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 shift in the decreased resistance to saying black lives matter and the black culture black lives and the, and the second is about uh, police reform so as far as the white coats for for black lives when that happened I looked at and I was I was so impressed and inspired, and it just it was a validation for what I had felt and what I was seeing as I was going around the country speaking, especially to uh, mm -hmm. 
colleges and medical schools and universities because uh, I recognize that like I I I don't call you I wouldn't call you kids younger generations I'm, I'm, something doesn't seem doesn't really seem to encapsulate how important you are to how to transforming society because uh, what I recognize is that the, these trainees and students that were a generation behind me were so much more socially aware and courageous than I was at that age. Uh, and yeah, I don't want to speak for my whole generation, but certainly more than I was. And I had questions that were so thoughtful and so introspective, but also willing to challenge the status quo. And I said, yeah, this generation is going places that they can do things no, no matter how much we want to disparage and say we don't understand like i was like yeah there's there's something here so i was not at all surprised when white close for black lives came out uh led by medical students uh nor was I surprised by the backlash uh that was received because when we're talking about race or racism uh that that leads to conflict and medical education and healthcare is is no different Mm-hmm. Now, currently, there seems to be less resistance, depending on, you know, depending on your point of view, less resistance or more acceptance. Uh, the energy definitely does feel different this time, mm-hmm. right? It feels like this time is going to be different. I hope so. Uh, but I mean, I've, I've, I've been here before. I'm not holding my breath. You know, I'm hoping, <laughs> I'm hoping for the best. We'll, we'll see. We'll see what happens. You know, you mentioned when you're going to medical school that uh, you, you remember going in when Flat Oak was killed. Now you're leaving when uh, when George Floyd. But I remember 20 something years ago, uh, mm-hmm. Rodney King. That film came out, and that was supposed to be the time that changed everything. But here we are. We know that in, in, in decades, nothing, not a whole lot has changed, right? So I'm I'm hopeful because it, it does feel different this time. There's uh, voices from all over, from different backgrounds and races and ethnicities and statuses and it's an international outcry so it does feel different i'm hoping for some sustainable change uh from this this current movement mm-hmm. so uh, you're right you are correct there has been a, an evolution over at least the four years definitely difference between now than it was four years ago mm-hmm. now for the calls for defunding the police uh well first I, I i think i can speak to this with some degree of um credibility because I was the chair of the police review board in the city of Dallas before I left. Mm-hmm. So that was the body that was charged with um, hearing citizens complaints about the police department and re- resolving those with the police and the citizens. So uh, I have some experience with that, that process and the different stakeholders, you know, citizens, police, politicians, police associations, um, this call to defund the police, I'm going to really define like, what does that mean to defund the police. And you know, uh, I'm not going to get into that, but I will say that for no doubt there is a need for police reform, policing reform. And I'm very uh, intentional about that because you, you want to really be sure we're talking about the same thing. We're not, we're not vilifying police, right? Yes, there are bad cops, but police, if you paint them all with a broad stroke, then you've kind of missed the point, in my opinion. That, that policing in itself as, as, as an entity, that needs to be reformed, right? Because there are 
systemic issues within policing that go back for generations um, that lead to the sort of disparities that we're seeing as far as policing and police brutality that are occurring in black communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you see similar things in healthcare. That, that's, a, that's another parallel. But policing itself needs to be reformed. When we talk about defunding the police, uh, I, the, the calls for shifting money from policing to somehow uplifting uh, communities, that, I'm on board with that. That just makes complete sense, right? If you have a community that is suffering from economic disparities, from education disparities, from job inequality, uh, and violent crime, and they are over-policed, well, uh, the, the, the mentality in the past has been to, okay, let's contain that element mm-hmm. with more policing, uh, but the cycle continues, right? No, nothing ever changes as far as lifting up that community. Right. So instead of doing that, if we could provide, uh, you know, better education, because right now education is more segregated than it was before uh, Brown versus the Board of Education Supreme Court decision. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't happen by accident. Right, by design. There is housing inequality that's the result of intentional policies that were meant to exclude Blacks from mainstream society. That is no accident. There is income inequality. Like, there's all these things that are were, were intended to isolate Blacks. So it was no surprise that with any communities you have higher rates of violence, which I deal with from a, from a gun violence perspective. So the thought is to give them more police to control that. Well, instead, let's let's shift some of those funds from the policing aspect to the community uplifting aspect and see what happens. Yeah, totally. So I want to push back here. Uh, since we're not on the wards, uh, um, I can step, you know, kind of cross the med student attending line. Um, so, I, you know, from my understanding, so Mariama Kaba wrote this op-ed in New York Times. She's... Uh, prison culture on Twitter. Um, And she talks about abolition, right? And some of the points that she makes, which are very salient, include the fact that a lot of reform has been done, right? The Obama administration was the absolute most aggressive that we've ever seen um, when it came to police reform in this country. But the resources that are supposed to, you know, go towards police reform are just too few um and and so there are eighteen thousand police departments in this country how do you systematize reform in a way that is sustainable you know reform as people call it um so a good example is the eight can't wait campaign that was initially released and it's sort of like shifting now with the campaign zero um group you know a lot of police departments have already adopted like six seven eight of those eight uh, suggestions or sort of like mandates, and yet, you know, you're, we're still kind of seeing the, the same patterns. Obviously, not a, you know, not quite the very same across the board. But but to me, what I understand what, when when we talk about abolition uh, and and defunding, and it sounds like the shifting of funds that you're describing that is on the path to defunding and eventually, uh, you know, abolishing police as we know it. Um, I guess that doesn't necessarily mean that there is no one that you can call when someone steals your bike from in front of your house. But the general issue of just contact with the police, right? I think that is part of what a lot of us feel like. It's like, I don't want to see the police ever because, I mean, not ever, ever, but like, 
when people call 911 for their own issue and then they end up being shot because they're black even if they weren't uh you know even if they weren't at fault of anything i think you you might remember uh, a few years ago a social worker black social worker got shot by the police because he was trying he was like on the ground trying to calm down his patient sort of instances like this that just that kind of suggests that the mere contact with police because of the nature of of how policing goes right this kind of like this cancer that has grown in police departments and yes of course like people you know will say you know if you have bad cops and you have quote unquote good cops um you know that Atlanta police chief you know during the protest was like in the crowd hugging people right. saying i'm sorry dot 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 and then a few days later Rashad Brooks is killed in the parking lot in Wendy's by you know like the same Atlanta police department you know what i mean it, it, it's it's it, it to me as a black man but also as a medical student having just kind of witnessing the ways in which police are sort of like showing their colors when it's time to shine which is like during protests you know that's like a stress test that okay let's see what you got and and they literally um did a whole bunch of like basically anti public health things right like the tear gassing the beatings um the antagonizing of the crowd that's what makes me feel as though we have got to reduce contact with police to near zero unless absolutely necessary and i don't know what you think of that well that's one important part about free form that has not that has not been discussed is the racism was foundational for policing in this country and you talk about why mm-hmm. to avoid contact with the police I, i'm with you i had the someone called the police on me when I was standing outside of my apartment one day and then showed up. Oh, like they did the uh, skip gets in Boston. Exactly. So, and as soon as they pulled up I recognized like holy crap, this could go bad for me. You know, the, immediately the tape is running. I say tape, you know, I'm not showing my age, but the, the recording the video is running in my head about how this could go completely wrong even if I do everything right. And somebody just saw me standing there and decided that I didn't belong where right there and called and I don't, I don't, I was just literally just standing there. I was just in the, I was a, I was guilty of being black in a white neighborhood. That's what it was, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that contact with police can be stressful, even if they don't put lay a finger on you, right? Because you, you know, right. I know how wrong that could go. And when we talk about reforms, I don't know that any reform has really addressed and admitted that. Police in this country, the foundation of it in this history was was based on racism, right? It was, it was based on maintaining or maintaining order. Uh, you can start with the slave patrols, mm-hmm. right? To 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 uh, track down runaway enslaved people, to was evolved to over generations, uh, and we recognize that the history of our country is based on genocide. Mm-hmm. And stealing of lands from native people, and enslaving people from foreign lands, like that is part of our history, and how policing has been an instrument to maintain that order over time. That has been part of the reform uh, uh, moving forward, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's been truly addressed with all of its scars and uh, difficulty, because I'm, I would guess that there are probably 
you know, young recruits going into policing that don't understand why people distrust them, right? They may not have a full understanding of this history. Mm-hmm. And you probably, the analogy you probably see in, in medical school, Max, is that we go through medical school, learn all this stuff, but how many times did you have a discussion about the exploitation of, of black patients that led to so many advances in medicine beyond Tuskegee? Can you think of any? For me, yes, because I'm, I I seek those discussions out and I like, you know, I take all the electives. But you're right. People only talk about Tuskegee and, and Henrietta Lacks. There isn't so much more discussed. So, I mean, the point is, like, we have people that are going into medicine now that already they're coming in with their implicit biases and maybe they're, you know, explicit biases. And it's being reinforced by the lack of education within healthcare. And that same thing can happen in policing as well. Like, we as far as reform, there's been no discussions that I know of that has really addressed the systemic racism that, that is the foundation of policing in this country, going back to uh, really controlling and isolating, uh, you know, people of color. I need, to read, I need to read that article you just talked about. I need to check that out. Yes, I will send it to you. I, I'll send you some abolitionist text. Right. But, you know, there's, there's no easy answer. Like, there, is, there, is there any quick answer to this? You know, these are these are these are durable systems. They were they were built to last, right? They were built to to control black people. Like uh, this is no matter how much we pretend, there that is the truth. They're, that was the intent, and that is working, and it is exactly as it was is designed. So people now may say they are not racist. They may now say I have nothing to do with it, but they certainly are bending, fitting from it in some way, whether they like it or not, whether they want to or not. So it is incumbent upon us to really deconstruct those systems so that we can create a society that is, you know, the manifestation of what the Constitution that says, where, you know, justice, uh, you know, liberty and justice for all, not just for some, Absolutely. but for all. You're saying all the right things. You sound like an abolitionist right now. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I'm learning something. Maybe I'm a closet abolitionist. I didn't even know it, but you're, you're waking me up. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, it was a pleasure to have you on the pod. Um, glad we made it happen. No, I thank you for having me. I'm honored to be a part of this and uh, keep doing what you're doing. Your, your podcast is its own form of activism and education. Thank you. Thanks everyone for listening and stay tuned for the next episode of Flip the Script.